Welcome to the movie, guys, and our love fest to man, myth, legend Harrison Ford. Let me get straight to the point. We're watching his whole catalog and breaking down his every role in every film in something we like to call the Ford Fiesta. I'm Paul Potomac Two-Step Preston. And I'm Adam Witness. This is our fifth episode of the Ford Fiesta, wrapping up Harrison Ford's time in obscurity. From here on in, he's in the spotlight. Yes, his last, I have a hard time finding him in this movie film. And the topic of today's show is Getting Straight, a movie made in 1970 that might as well be called 1970 The Movie. We're going to talk all about it today, and if you're new to the show... It's still a little fresh to a lot of people, so help us out by liking, commenting on the show. We will respond. Subscribe where you can, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and more, and visit themovieguys.net for more shenanigans. And of course, at The Movie Guys all over social, because social media is where talk about the show can just take off. I understand its power now. So, you haven't seen Getting Straight, we rightly assume, and no doubt want to know what it's about. We'll help you out with our movie recap in just a sec, and later on we'll converse about the film and give our thoughts But if you want to hear from two people in love with Getting Straight, look no further than a conversation Adam sent to me between Quentin Tarantino and Kim Morgan at a swinging 60s marathon. It's on YouTube. You can just search it, Quentin Tarantino, Getting Straight, and I'm sure it'll come right up. And it's pretty interesting because I don't know how often that happens to you, Adam, but Getting Straight, I was like, that's all right. And then when you hear two people just in love with a movie, you reflect on yourself and go, geez, what did I miss? Am I a jerk? Did I get it wrong? No, I I give some... I poke this movie in the ribs a lot and it earns that plenty, but I can see the masterpiece that he sees in it. I mean, I can see all the things. I mean, you got to be forgiving about other things that may not play completely, but, you know, I see it. I don't think he mentions Harrison Ford once, which is hilarious. Yeah, he, goes, he does uh, not. No, I listened to no. the whole, it's like nine minutes like, or whatever. Like, he's into this movie because it's from the director of The Stuntman, from Laszlo Kovacs. He's like all straight, hammered down on the filminess of it. He didn't, he didn't, he's forgotten that Harrison Ford is in this movie. <laughs> well, we have not. So that brings us to... What's new in the world of Harrison Ford? Well, let's see. We have... Uh... Well, not much. So once again, the inter- <laughs> the uh, the news cycle on Harrison Ford is grasping. I found a website devoted to watches that has a new article all about the Breitling Navitimer Pluton 2011 PVD <laughs> military-assigned French aviation watch that Harrison Ford wore in a promo pic from 1984. Oh, wow. This is a new article about that photo. It's a true pilot's watch with military time, and the author of the article would love to know how he got it. And sure enough, there was a big discussion in the comments. You talk too much. Watch collectors are like any other collectors. There's like, there are people with hundreds of watches and like you and I would see that 1984 promo pic. I don't know what, which one this is. I'm sure as soon as I see it, I'm like, I would know it. I think it was just him. That's the thing. Like, but it was in the era of Temple of Doom. So, you know, he's looking like that, but he's 
having a coffee or whatever, but they noticed, oh, he's got a Breitling Navitimer Pluton 2011 PVD military assigned French aviation watch. And there's theories like, must have got it at Cannes, right? He was at Cannes. You and I would look at that and see something completely different, which is like, oh man, Harrison Ford looks so awesome. That's amazing. Can you imagine that? Being on set with him? Well, somebody else who who is a fake us commented what really we would have said, which is, it belongs in a museum. Nice. <laughs> <Which I appreciate laughs> Oh, and there was a follow-up to a previous news story. We talked here about how Harrison Ford went to Helen's Bikes in Santa Monica. <laughs> I love how little Harrison Ford news there is. We are following up on the story of him going and getting a bike in Santa Monica. Daily Mail was all over it. Because I guess when he went before, he must have dropped his bike off, so now it's come back because it's been serviced and he's picking it up. It's such, There's so much going on. You gotta just... I never thought of that as two stories, but the Daily Mail, they're on it. They're like, not only is he there, but he's going to have to come <laughs> we're sending a guy like two three days later because yeah falling um, asleep in the lap of the tmz guy <laughs> <laughs> and well here at the further grasping you can still google harrison ford news today like i do every time we do this show and i had to finally bring it up because it comes up all the time but i just ignore it but it continues to come up articles about did you know harrison ford wasn't the first choice for indiana jones oh god yeah yes we do it was tom Selleck. for the love of god we've known it for 40 years it's true but but in the days before the internet uh and even ready access to libraries sometimes uh you know how would you find out but and yet we knew that tom Selleck almost played indiana jones that made it through the internet of fourth graders or whatever we were <laughs> yeah and it's still very very high on harrison ford news searches two or three different articles letting you know casey didn't and of course one more quick recurring show segment we get to um before we uh get to uh getting straight this date in ford history now it's just approaching mid-March now. Uh, this will air. Give me a bigger one, Paul. This date. <laughs> I don't think we're appropriately uh, we're, we're celebrating that enough. We don't have that pre-recorded. We are going to have to work on some production value version of that. This, uh, all right. So one more quick recurring show segment. This is dated in Ford Art and History. 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 Perfect. <laughs> March thirteenth. So again, this is probably air mid-April, but this is mid-March now, and in. 1997 on March 13th, The Devil's Own is released. Another one of those right January to March Ford movies. There's now that we've gone through those months doing the show, there are more than I remember. I thought I was thought he was a summer blockbuster guy, but he keeps putting out ones. Well, you made the point in our first episode that that uh, or one of the or one of these Dayton Ford history that it was a rare February release. But I've been surprised as we keep going along that he's. That, that Harrison Ford has put out so many movies, we're not going to go too many weeks without a release at some point in his career happening nearby. Yeah, every month we'll have yeah, <laughs> multiple releases. And then March 14th, 1983 is when Ford married Melissa Matheson. Now, when I was talking to somebody that, that we were doing this show, they were talking about the personal life implications and how the film career affected them. And so we mm -hmm. haven't talked about that yet. So this is a good time no, to bring that no, up because... Haven't. He didn't marry Melissa Matheson, the screenwriter of E.T., until 1983. E.T. had come out, and they had met and and, uh, and got married. But since the early 60s, he was married to Mary Marquardt, and Mary Marquardt is the mother to his two kids, Ben, who's this famous chef, and Malcolm. So you're looking at, right now he's got these bit parts, and he's probably thrilled. He's like, I got two kids. I gotta, <laughs> I'm got. i so happy that Columbia's taken me under their wing for 
you know, all these films and TV shows and then jumping over to Universal and doing you know, Time for Killing and now uh, back to Columbia, I think, right, for uh, for Getting yeah. Straight. So the, the work's constant and you, you kind of see how, okay, well, this must be great for him, even if they're small parts, to get something going on. Right. Because uh, he's got, got a burgeoning family. Yeah. I mean, when he first moved to L.A., I remember reading some article. It was, you know, it was so so thin that's why uh, I think he picked up carpentry or it might have been when he finally bought a house maybe with this money that he took up carpentry because the house was a dump they bought a real cheap place just so they could have any place to live and uh, so he ended up fixing up the whole place himself reading out of books like on on carpentry and slowly buying the equipment and stuff so that yeah anyway like an actor does every actor's got the back pocket gig Uh, his is just of course super famous (laughs) because for reasons we'll get to in future episodes but um so, getting straight. Now, what exactly is this thing that keeps us from watching American Graffiti for one more week? Questions like that are exactly why we have our patented Movie Guys recap. Let's do it. No way he's a movie star in any other decade actor, Elliot Gould, plays Harry Bailey, a caricature of the 1960s college intellectual. Harry is slacking his way through his master's degree in teaching with a minor in grad student soliloquies about how the world works at Naval Gazing University. 60s campus culture is sent up in the characters that surround Harry and the many political opinions they have and have and have. The movie moves from one random comment on society to another, Native Americans to Buddhists to James Baldwin to racism to the war. It almost moves faster than society's ability to churn out ills. Everybody Harry runs into lectures on their political cause, including the Mac himself, Max Julian, who is demanding the college add a pimp studies department. Harry's older than the campus youths and finds himself on the periphery of the student protests looking in, having been away from the school for six years in Vietnam, although the word Vietnam is never spoken. Quick with a smart-ass comment, Harry annoys the college authority figures he's supposed to be sucking up, but what's an Elliot Gould to do? And what else can go wrong? Oh yeah, he's broke. Really broke. And if you don't believe me, ask the movie and its many scenes of Harry's disaster of a car that emits sparks, smoke, fire, and sprays oil like a fountain all over the windshield like he's driving a 59 Buick poltergeist. While many of the liberated conversations in this movie could be found in early Woody Allen, this moment definitely has a kinship with bananas. But you can't have a well-rounded life of conflict without also making a woman's life hell. And the joy of dating this mouthy outcast falls to Jan, played by Candace Bergen, an icon of counterculture and feminism who unfortunately is still dating in a world where guys who look like Gabe Kaplan are romantic leads. On a long enough timeline, the chances of not being lectured by Harry drop to zero, and so it is with Jan's relationship with Harry. At any moment, a romantic... At any time, a romantic moment can be broken with Harry yelling his thoughts on sexual liberation at her face. Does a lot of that. An ensemble of single-panel cartoon hippies and 60s culture types enter and exit Harry's campus adventures, including 60s The Person, Nick, who went as Peter Fonda for Halloween and never took the costume off. Every time Nick enters the scene, he's got a brand new way to dodge the draft. He's Buddhist. He's gay. He's a Native American. His father was Fred Trump. By the end of the movie, he comes across a foolproof plant and not get drafted and voluntarily joins the Marines. (laughs) That'll show him. (laughs) But that's not the hippie we're here to talk about. Oh, no. Oh, Harry, Jan. Harry! 
Harrison Ford plays Jake, an artist Harry runs into at all of Jan's parties. You weren't going to walk by, were you? I was waiting for you. We were having a party. You left the door open. We were waiting for you. Which become learn-ins with everyone diminishing the previous speaker's point to lecture the crowd on their point. Not to be out highbrowed by a room with that many options, Harry goes into a full Bill Maher New Rule segment. Why protest on the campus? Why not out in the real world where it'll do some good? You want to sell draft tips? Forget about college kids. I mean, they'll take care of themselves. Set your booth outside of a munitions factory where those poor ignorant suckers don't have a chance. Of course, you just might get your teeth kicked and be in trouble. Learnings. What a treat. <laughs> Harry has dinner at Jan's parents in the suburbs, and Dad shoves combative political arguments into the conversation long before Fox News would become the official sponsor of Thanksgiving. After all, in 1970, Rupert Murdoch would have only been 60. Harry either delivers a political monologue or gives a line reading for most plays being written in this school's theater department. Candace Bergen's had it, an OK Boomer's Harry, telling him, If you're so goddamn smart, why can't you make me happy? Harry faces the eternal question of the freethinker, join the kids or sell out and suck up to the man to get his master's degree. He sells out, but within the hermetically sealed bubble of college, this means giving campus tours. Oh no, the subjugation of his soul! As the date for Harry's master's oral, Pardon me, what'd you say? approaches, Jan leaves Harry and sides with the youth, joining the campus protests, which rise in intensity and frequency. Harry goes over to Jan's to try and reconcile with her, only to come face-to-face with Random Ford. How's everything? Harrison Ford's Jake the Avant-Garde artist greets him at the door. Just have, just have a few people over. Why don't you come on in? The scene reveals that Jan has left him for not Harrison Ford, but rather a truly pointy-headed academian complete with sweater, pipe, loftier ideals, and even less connection to the outside world. And this is my friend, Dr. Bill Greengrass. He's asked her to marry him, and with Harrison Ford standing right there... Candace Bergen considers this guy might be the best she'll do. The campus protests, who have settled on the generic message of action now. Just anything anybody wants to do, just some action. We're just concerned there is a lack of it. Protest, 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 protest. protest. When it grows big enough to threaten the straights, who decide the only way to raise the tensions higher is to call on the National Guard, which the protesters protest. The disparity in Harry's decision to abandon politics for a car that runs is obvious to him as he passes the chaos to give his master's oral. That's what I thought you said. In contrast, the window onto the world behind Harry shows the protests turning violent as the National Guard clashes with the students as he gives his master's oral. If I go down, you're going with me. Harry sees their lecture and raises them one soapbox, two harangues, and a spiel. If you didn't want them to think, you shouldn't have given them library cards. Now it's too late. Let go! Stop trying to hold back the hands of the clock! It'll tear your arms out! And one credit hour short of knowing it all, he throws it all away. He turns the presentation into its own riot, standing on the table, yelling, throwing papers, and exercising his internal conflicts. We want to be free to ride our machines without being hassled by the man. And we want to get loaded. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Harry and Chant meet up amidst the tear gas and batons and helicopters and riots and 60s. Jan has left her fiancé saying, I don't like it. I don't belong there. Harry tells her he's blown his master's oral. Laugh it up, fuzzball. And gives the same reason. What could be the creed of all wandering souls? I don't like it. I don't belong there. Because that speaks to you kids, right? You kids catching all this youth? (laughs) 
and that's that's getting straight. And if you're confused, so was I when I watched it. This is a 1970 feature. And Harrison Ford has now gone back to Columbia after jumping to Universal for Journey to Shiloh. His contract expired, which is the thing they did back then, and he just went back to Columbia to make this one. And as I research online, there's no budget listed. So, you know, it was tougher to find a budget for some movies back then. You know, it's clearly out there now because box office is so important post-Star Wars. But this, of course, seven years before Star Wars. So we don't know what it cost. But um, and the tagline... America's children lay it on the line. <laughs> and don't they ever? <laughs> yes. Well, about two thirds of the way through the movie. <laughs> yeah. So as we go along and do this podcast, I'm going to mention, you know, our experience with the movie, because with a lot of Harrison Ford movies, we have this long history of when we saw it and what it's meant to us, who we shared it with, how, you know, how, how it holds up. This, of course, is the fourth in a string of or fifth in a string of movies that we're just seeing for the first time so there's no there's none of that but the experience i did have in the short amount of time was still pretty entertaining like i started typing in getting straight and amazon was sure i didn't mean that (laughs) (laughs) you're not renting getting we don't even know that we have this movie here surely you mean just getting started with morgan freeman and tommy just no 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 i mean getting straight surely you mean rachel getting married within him no i mean getting straight no surely you mean getting even with dad anything but nope nope I mean, getting straight. Even with uh, dad. No one rents this to the point where twice during the movie, I got the spinning circle interrupting my my feed (laughs) to say this. We're not, we're not even streaming this now, but. Well, I'm having a great time. (laughs) I don't know about you, Paul, but this is. Absolutely. What a, what a revelation. Another, this, this journey of what are we five Harrison Ford movies in? And this is the end of a certain phase in Harrison Ford because the next movie we're going to be covering will be American Graffiti. Actually, I guess that's the end of Harrison Ford phase one if we're to turn into Marvel phases, right? Uh, and then we, we head into a whole different uh, phase. But this is, uh, you never know what Harrison Ford you're going to get. Not, not, not now, no. I mean, and I'm sure it'll waver. Well, it won't even waver that much after American Graffiti. We'll get heroes, and then but then he's kind of you know Harrison Hanover Street. He'll be kind of heroish. More Stan from Navarro, he'll be heroish. And then he locks into that, and then he breaks out of that to become something that still infuses the character we saw in those action movies. So now it's whatever the heck. Yeah, absolutely. The fun thing about watching these first few movies, and it, now this is going to go away. This is the end of this. At what point is Harrison Ford going to enter the movie we're watching? We're not going to have that question anymore. <laughs> I think three times in the movie he opens a door, like a door gets opened and it's Harrison Ford. Oh, Harry, Jan, wait. Hey, you weren't going to walk by, were you? I was waiting for you. We were having a party, you left the door open, we were waiting for you. One time looking in a total POV shot, that whole scene goes into a POV thing. And so you're like staring right into Harrison Ford's eyes. But, you know, it was maybe a half hour into this movie and you start to get that suspense. You're like, ooh, when's Harrison Ford going to show up? This is so what was so annoying about A Time for Killing is like he came up right away and that was it. Then you had the whole 90 more minutes of a movie without Harrison Ford. But this and a few other ones, you're like, ooh, at what point is he going to show up? At what point is he going to show up? And he shows up. It doesn't disappoint in a very different Harrison Ford than we've seen before or ever will. I think this might be the only of this Harrison Ford. You know, I found a little bit frantic. When's the last time you saw frantic? The day we got the VCR. There's the one point he remember, he pretends to be a boyfriend of some character and he's like pretending to be drunk and he's like, hey man, you get out of here, man. And he's kind of doing this hippie character oh. that he is uh, in this. You know, well, 
When we do frantic, you'll remember. You'll go, oh, okay, he's pulling a little getting straight out of one of his little bag of tricks. He doesn't pull it out often. That's the fun thing about now revisiting the other Harrison Ford movies is we would never have said, ooh, this, we're getting a little bit of a getting straight Harrison Ford in, <laughs> in this movie back when you saw that. <laughs> yeah, we could share that with each other. Everyone else will just go, I'm sorry. And then the second time, a door is opened and suddenly that's the one where Harrison Ford's looking at the point of view. But after those first two, I was like, any door that's opened could be open by Harrison Ford. For the rest of the movie, I had this great experience. I was like, please tell me. Because every time you go to a door, I'm like, oh, please tell me Harrison Ford's behind that door. <laughs> no, I've obviously gone over the plot for this. You know, by the end, the students are revolting on the campus. And uh, and his third appearance is in the middle of that. He kind of just runs up to Ilya Gould. <laughs> he says my favorite line in the whole movie. Uh, he's accused by this character, Nick, who's been trying to dodge the draft the whole movie, of being like a subversive painter <laughs> or having subversive art on <laughs> campus. And he says, tell me, man, my wife's ass is a subversive painting? And he's crazy. He's trying to get me kicked out of the art department for subversive painting. Oh, Christ. He's really flipped. I mean, my wife's ass is a subversive painting. And then they cut away. Like, that's he had the outline of the scene with the, with the weirdest, funniest line in the whole movie. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny how he shows up for just a moment. And the scenes, every time he shows up, the scenes go on for a long time. And he never shows up again. He just comes in with, like, two weird lines. My wife's ass is a subversive painting. There's a t-shirt. There's a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so who do we see most of the time? Elliot Gould, right? Just coming off of MASH and Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. So he's like a hot commodity. Is there anybody like Elliot Gould today? Can you compare Boy. any current actor to Elliot Gould oh. and his sort of bizarre full mustache 70s 60s and 70s career i mean it's hard to do i am unprepared to answer that question uh maybe... <laughs> i'll tell you sasha baron cohen looks like him okay. playing abby hoffman but that's you know, nick that's offerman just, that's just looking like every time nick offerman shows up i <laughs> yeah you can't see nick offerman yelling as no, much as elliot right, gould does right. in this movie good lord they're yelling yeah and elliot gould gets full front and center to rant so many times in this movie it's it's it might be the most elliot gould movie including how hard i'm heard i've told he is to work with like that, that the guy we're getting that's a total jerk in this movie too i'm like yeah that's what i heard it was like to work with him for the directors as well i would say all the movies we've watched so far have tried to be 1968 movies but were clearly written with a different mindset and having that counterculture shoved into the movies that's been kind of fascinating that like there's no free love thing in love but it's such a hot commodity it's such a thing we want to try and get in the movie that we want to give the illusion that there's a three-way journey to shiloh to your point is talks it has themes of war that reflect the vietnam war but it's of course set in the old west so it's not about it but here's the bullseye is what you're saying right right well and, and also in terms of cast like in this movie you've got elliot gould and candace bergen and they were true counterculture poster children so this is a real hippie movie and we have her before carnal knowledge so i mean it's just well carnal knowledge is a, is, a, is a good uh thing to discuss as well because the script for this clearly needed to be directed by someone other than Richard Rush. This movie seemed it wants to be directed by Woody Allen or Mike Nichols. And so therefore, a lot of this all comes off clunky. It's like stop down and monologue to make sure you've still got the, the grad, the hippie grad school students attention over and over in this movie. You know, the quick deep dive on Richard Rush. He started with movies like Hell's Angels on Wheels and Thunder Alley and went on to make this and then Freebie and the Bean. Speaking of James Caan. And then 
In 80, he makes The Stuntman. The Stuntman. The Stuntman with, with Peter O'Toole gets two Oscar nominations. He's on His name's on both of them. Or they might have got three, but I know he got two, director and script, for that movie. He disappears. He's gone for 14 years. It comes out with Color of Night, the crap Bruce Willis like sex thriller. That was Richard Rush? But that's it. So he's like, I don't know what happened there, but uh, the stuntman did him in or something. And then the one, one other thing I'll say about uh, about um, Richard Rush is that he will go into a very wacky way to shoot certain scenes. Certain scenes will just pop into a style. He's talking to one of the professors and it goes into this huge fisheye lens where the guy's like nose is all... And it just, and then it goes back. He types on the typewriter and it cuts below the typewriter from the typewriter's point of view. Anything goes, you know? The way this campus is set up with all the, the, the walkways and the, boy, he shoots the hell out of it and uses the sort of depth of field, uh, Robert Altman style of zooming in. And But I seem to remember that from the stuntman as well. So I was very intrigued at how this kind of cool campus they found was shot. I got two stories on that. Lane Community College, I guess in Oregon, is where they shot, and it was still being built, so it wasn't even a campus yet. So they were building it, and they said, let's go in and trash it, and then rebuild it, and you can have your campus back. So they were able to do all sorts of stuff. I think they smashed a couple of things that they had to pay for and blew up some things they yeah. had to apologize <laughs> for. But, uh, yeah, so all they could take advantage of everything. They weren't putting anybody out, basically, to shoot this, So which was great. You know, you didn't have to do it in any time when there weren't classes. And so whenever they had a chaos or a huge melee scene, uh, it was no big thing. Um, And a hyper-modern architecture. So it's clearly being built at that time because this is like, look at the weird uh, industrial, you know, artistic, lots and lots of angles. Shot by Laszlo Kovacs, too. So he's coming off Easy Rider. He's on his way to Last Detail. This is his jam. It's right in his wheelhouse. Oh, wow. God, I forgot that's what this would be sandwiched in between. That's great. And I love that at the top of the movie, it said, a film by the organization. Like that's, you know, it's usually a film by Ridley Scott right. or a film by James Cameron, a film by the organization. Man, that's what this said. That's so like 60s, was, right? And Rush took this story. It was a story of, of this guy who's going to get his teaching degree, but it became all about the revolution when we got into Richard Rush's hands. He got a writer and he said, we're going to make this about the Vietnam War. He had a cool quote. He said, to me, the whole revolution is not a political revolution, but a personal one. It's the result of the inability of an entire generation on a personal individual level to accept the disparities in the morality at the foundation of our society. It's a great quote. And so he wow. takes that and he says, I'm infusing this original story with that. So I think that's where he amped up everything that was 70s and counterculture about the story. And uh, clearly he got a good first draft and just shot that. So... <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was the most successful of those. I mean, if we look at the aftermath of the movie, 13 million domestic gross, that's the 21st, highing, 21st highest grossing movie of 1970. 13 million wow. will get you that back in 1970. I mean, that puts it at like a knives out, you know? So that's like a oh, wow. <laughs> knives out level of, of box office. So they really got the about. Easy Rider audience they were looking for. Because, I mean, this movie is looking for that audience big time. Yeah, and more... Uh, successful than medium cool and Zabriskie point and films like it. Yeah, that's true because so many of those that came out of that, like the the studios were like, Oh, we want an easy writer so bad. And they did not get a lot of easy writers for all the young filmmakers they went to, to try and get one. But you talk about the first draft of the script that he shot. Uh, (laughs) It does like, it is refreshing to see a bunch of characters just openly talking about all the things that today it wouldn't even touch or for fear of being canceled. You know, it's like, 
they, they talk about race. They talk about sex and politics and all these other things. Uh, but I, I don't think I could be in a room with that character for more than like two seconds. No, I mean, his, a lot of, his character, yeah. Harry Bailey. Well, and, I and mean, I don't think, Lord. and I don't think the movie cast him as the hero. Most of the time, obviously no. we love Candace Bergen. And when he's a jerk to her, he's a terrible character, even intentionally in this movie that he constantly makes those turns into insufferable, 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 which is his journey to uh, not become that. But he, that only happens in the last few minutes, but. Yeah, well, and not be not to fit in with the, like a choice to not fit in with the establishment. Yeah, and but yeah, he, there's one point where she comes over crying to him after the riots, and she's really really upset, so he has sex with her. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like oh, he's hugging her. No, he's putting her on the ground, and he's climbing on top of her, and he's gonna have sex with her. Yeah, like, I mean, he's such. You might a just want to hold her at this point, but I, maybe I'm maybe I'm like a two thousands guy. <laughs> but but he's never not called out for being a jerk. So there's some uh, absolutely yeah. It is, it is telegraphing the basic college conversations that you have like this, you know, that, that, so that's all over this movie. I mean, I have to imagine now that you mentioned it was a, a box office hit. I have to imagine. I all, mean, 21st the, highest grossing. It's eh, modest, you know, but but of these counterculture movies, it was it was the hit of them. But yeah, it's it's bringing that like college campus feel of uh, and I don't know what else. What else do you even see that in? Really? It's. It's probably an, an outlier, interesting, brand new type of movie at the time. You know, college movies before this were like Marx Brothers play a football game you know, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing is that uh, I saw it, Siskel, Gene Siskel, among the other among other critics, trashed it, gave it like one and a half stars is because there's no conflict till the latter half of the movie or maybe two thirds of the way through. I said before, and I think he's right. You know, that's when the students, the student body, really becomes this presence in the film. Until then, it's kind of smoldering, I guess, underneath. And uh, and there's not much that Gould's character is doing except wandering between vignettes. He's like, okay, well, my car is crazy, and oh, my girl's crazy. Oh, and I'm being kicked out of my place, and oh, I have no money, and oh, like it's just right. one, here's my buddy Nick trying a different way to get out of the draft. You know, and then finally the worlds collide of like the the smoldering student anger, and then his place in it, and then it be kind of comes a movie. Yeah, the the problem is when that stuff swells up, it feels unearned in a weird True. way. It's like, yes. oh, we're gonna, and, and it even goes to the medium cool 16 millimeter cameraman getting knocked down amongst the crowd. But you're like, we really haven't earned this in a weird way. You know, this this was a Mad Magazine movie. You know, when he was in his car. You know, it's it's got the you ever you ever be in you know Jack Davis, the old bad magazine artist in this he did the Bad News yeah. Bears poster, there's an Animal House poster. Actually that yeah. might have been not but but you know the Jack Davis would do these cartoony posters of the seventies. Every once in a while you'll be in a movie, and this one is one of them, where you, you real you think to yourself, I wonder if Jack Davis did the poster for this movie. And I haven't looked it up, but it feels like a real Jack Davis poster <laughs> of a movie up until maybe the last half hour, you know? Yeah, and you have some familiar faces in there. I noticed uh, Jeff Corey, the guy who played Dr. Will Hunt, the one who really was upset with him being in the teaching department. And eventually they have a big standoff at the end where Elliot Gould yells. But uh, <laughs> he, he looked familiar. And sure enough, I looked him up. He played Wild Bill Hickok in Little Big Man, and I love that movie. Oh, really? So, oh, that's yeah. awesome. And among other things, big character actor. And he had Billy Bird at his, as his landlady, you know, who ended up playing an old lady and all sorts of uh, old lady foils and all sorts of sitcoms and movies. One Crazy Summer, 16 Candles. I know her from 16 Candles, yes. 
uh, in the scene where he gives the uh, head of the education department and he come to a head, that that whole library is such an architectural marvel. They they just they're having this argument and it just stays in this wide shot because it's just glorious. I mean, it's, it's like they're in the Gu- it's like they're in the Guggenheim or something. <laughs> With a Bradbury building, you know, which is Roy Batty's place in Blade Runner. Right, like, right, right. Outside of the ornateness that's still, the, like, the Total staircases odd angles. Balconies. Yeah, it's an M.C. Escher <laughs> building, basically. Yeah. But when he has the uh, the blow up with that guy, that was over a cheating scandal, which, because he had fake Peter Fonda, who is basically 60s the person. Uh, <laughs> every other word is man he's constantly smoking on a joint he's just absolutely fully embroiled in the hippie lifestyle you know he has that guy go take his exam for him and from the very beginning he writes the wrong name on the blue book and then crosses it out <laughs> and you're like oh this ain't gonna go well <laughs> the music was super 60s you have plenty of acoustic guitar Rim shots, you know. At any point, uh, acoustic guitar could come in to bridge one scene to another in a very indicative of the time. Or not, or sometimes just to, to show you something else and go right back to the same scene. Like there was a scene where he's having an argument with one of the heads of the, the school and they cut and they... they pull back from they're in a they're in the window in an office they pull back to show a fight and they bring in music they go back in in the same shot to the two shot of them arguing in the office and the music fades away as they fade away from the scene outside as if there was music playing outside yeah and when they zoom outside <laughs> to see it they go back in again yeah leonard cohen's outside trying to bridge a scene we'll, we'll just catch a little of that and we'll come back to this scene but yeah leonard cohen's trying to get us from one scene to the next yeah, it's like Count Basie in the middle of the desert. And my favorite scene might be uh, that when fake Peter Fonda comes back and he hands him the, the book full of weed because he's being chased by cops. <laughs> another Jack Davis scene that could be painted on the poster if uh, Jack Davis did one. Um, he, he says to him, can't I even have the luxury of hating you? <laughs> so there's some really good lines in this movie. All right, so let's, let's weigh this performance against the Harrison Ford definitive list of essentials. So, does Harrison Ford in this film show righteous anger? Hell no. Hell no. He's super hippie, laid back. uh, Oh my God, he's so laid back. It's a very funny Harrison (laughs) Ford to watch in that regard. I mean, my wife's ass is a subversive painting. Yeah, it's like, uh, should we get to get to play this part? Should we get, uh, should we get Harrison Ford or Chong? So that naturally he doesn't point, but he does. So he does have the charm, though. Smile and charm is is on points. Yeah, so it's all smile and charm, no point and growl. No, no Uh, point and growl. He is not uh, the romantic lead at all. Although I thought for a second he was going to have a romantic moment because when he does the point of view shot, he leads uh, he, he leads him in like he's the new boyfriend of Candace Bergen, but he's not. And in fact, he doesn't show up again for the rest of that scene. So what's he doing there? But anyway. <laughs> he's hanging in the periphery. He does a lot of that in this. But I thought for a second when Harrison Ford answered the door, which he does a couple times, uh, that I was like, oh, she she went off with Harrison Ford, but she didn't. So without being punchy and, uh, you know, righteous, how Harrison Ford is he in this, in the percentage scale? Zero percent? <laughs> Do you give him anything? I gave maybe 20 for the, uh, for the, uh, I don't know, the hair. <laughs> 
Well, I well, I guess he gets spotted twenty for just being Harrison Ford. I mean, as, as soon as he opened up that door, I just started laughing and was having a great time. And I'm like, it's just I love Harrison Ford. Here he is. <laughs> so you're right. He gets spotted thirty percent for being Harrison Ford to begin with. Because I mean, I did enjoy seeing Harrison Ford show up. And yeah, there was another melee at the end as the students, right. you know, sub- uh, converge on the school. And they fail to have Harrison Ford punch anyone. So I think the Harrison Ford punch count that we've been tallying since the beginning does not advance again this week. No, he's been in three movies in a row with knockout brawls that he's in, and he throws no punches. This is another one where I was like, Harrison Ford could be in this crowd. It's a giant crowd of student protesters. He's definitely protesting. We haven't seen him protest in the movie, but he could be there easily. Oh, I kept waiting. I kept waiting, hoping that maybe he'd be there and throw a punch. That'd be great. So career total to date stalls at one. One. Jack Lemon. All right, that's enough obscurity. The Ford Fiesta podcast returns next week and covers American Graffiti. Yes. Of course, we still have that one Henry Winkler movie a couple weeks from now. That's going to be... Uh, shut up. In between episodes, don't forget to follow us on at the movie guys everywhere on social media. And of course, themovieguys.net. So you're ending this show? Yeah. Boring conversation anyway. Yeah.